Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for listening today. Today's topic is DTC Logistics Innovation with my friend Rick Watson. How's it going, Rick? Uh, it's going great, Joe. Glad to be back on the show again. I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I should preface this by saying that Rick on my podcast, I think this is the third time, I think, and uh, he has so much great so many great insights into e-commerce and retail and just the changing world of direct-to-consumer and e-commerce and B2B and B2C and all the things that wrapped up in there. So if you don't already follow Rick on LinkedIn, please, because he is probably the best follow you can have and when it comes to uh, all, all of those topics. So Rick, please introduce yourself and your company, where you're calling from today. Yeah. My name is Rick Watson. I'm calling from New York City. You know, I'm in the big city. I'm not in, uh, you know, not in a rural area like you, uh, Joe. <laughs> so the name of my company is RMW Commerce Consulting. And so I work with private equity funds and private equity backed brands in the middle market to help grow and optimize their e-commerce businesses. So many of them have a large proportion of their revenue in wholesale and retail channels, and they're looking to how do we get closer to our customers? How do we give them better service while at the same time not not upsetting all these existing customers that we have today? And so that's how I spend my life with really people process technology improvements and optimizations that will help these businesses grow faster. Right. And by the way, we, we, before we hit record, we were talking about the massive changes to the logistics company. So if you're a logistics company, sometimes I, I, I get this sense that we feel flat-footed, like, Everybody's doing something great. What are we doing, right? And then I get the same sense if you're a retailer, like, should we be doing more direct-to-consumer, delivering from stores, all of these things? And then I also think of like brands. If you're a brand right now, are you saying, are we supposed to be selling through retail? I thought everything was going through <laughs> marketplaces or direct from our website. And I think this is this is a, a time of great uncertainty and I think great opportunity. So you also forgot to mention, Rick, the Watson Weekly. Before we get into this topic, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the Watson Weekly is a podcast I started last year. It is a 10 to 15 minute podcast every single Monday morning. It's Except when you had digest. COVID. Except I had COVID <laughs> one week. I had to skip one week, but we still, we still dropped it. See, we don't have COVID here anymore, Rick, just in the city. <laughs> yeah, that was about a month ago. It seems like COVID's only in New York anymore. So that's good for the rest of the country, wherever you are. If you're not in Manhattan, that's great. But the Watson Weekly covers a number of stories every single week in e-commerce, as well as off, just offering my my take on what, not just sort of what the news is, but my take on what's happening in the news and why, why it's important for businesses to pay attention to. Yep. And I, I like that it's 10, 15 minutes. And I would also say, um, I do do a podcast. I do three times a week. And I talk to a lot of people, a lot of very knowledgeable people. And then, and they're all bringing their knowledge to my podcast. It's not me. Rick, you do so much research and the insights you have are, because it's, I can say, hey, DTC is growing. I know at that at a high level, I read articles, but you seem to have really some great insights on that. So if you don't already listen to the Watson Weekly, please consider that. Anyway, Rick, before we get into the topic today, give us some career highlights before you started 
RMW Commerce and why you started RMW Commerce. Yeah. So my background is technology. I was kind of grew up writing software and electrical engineering, computer science. That's what I studied in school. And one of the first companies I started with back in 99 was a company called Channel Advisor. And I was, I was there for 10 years. It, it was started as a, as a startup, five, just five or 10 employees. And by the time I left in 2010, there was 350 employees. And if you kind of look, look at the timeline of e-commerce. That's the old guard. That's the first 10 years of e-commerce right there. Like eBay started, went to the moon and went down. Amazon almost went out of business, started a marketplace, built, started building fulfillment and started expanding into every category you can imagine. And so those those two big forces were we spent a lot of time helping customers there. And I was writing software and then helping build software roadmaps for customers so that we can improve their businesses online and, and marketplaces in particular. I also spent time at barnesandnoble.com, helping them build their third-party marketplace you know, to compete with Amazon, which is a, a tough job. But you know, so we were add, able to add over a million SKUs to their platform, you know, during that time. <laughs> this was about 2011. And recently, I was head of product management for Pitney Bowes Global E-Commerce Group. And so we were helping retailers, primarily in the U.S. and the U.K., with cross, cross-border logistics and payments through an through, uh, acquisition they made by a company, Border Free. They also powered eBay's global shipping program. So they... You know, we were building software that integrated with a warehouse facility, a cross-dock facility in Kentucky that we were then contracting with, you know, carriers in 200 markets around the world so that we could get parcels to consumers on time, even if the domestic shipper only shipped to the U.S. You know, now they could access all these international markets with item classification and, and all the right codes and compliance and duties and taxes, you know, to get the product out uh, delivery duties paid. Yep. So when and why did you start RMW Commerce Consulting? Yeah, it's it's a great question. So this was, as I was uh, leaving Pitney Bowes, and I would say in the first couple of months of 2019, you know, I saw, I was kind of deciding like, where do I want to take my career next? Do I want to jump back into a company? I'd always thought I started my own business. And it just felt to me like this was the a right time to do something a little bit different. I saw that e-commerce was still growing. I mean, this is even before the pandemic, obviously, you know, e-commerce has been growing forever, but 2019, I saw it's not slowing down. It's still growing. There's so much investment in the space, but I also saw that there are a lot of companies out there who had bad websites, bad customer experience, bad fulfillment performance, overrun costs, failed technology projects, all the, you know, all these different things. Like, why is that? that we're 20 years into the e-commerce revolution and there's still all these failed projects right. and, and bad customer experiences. And so I was like, you know, and my conclusion was it was really kind of a failure or a lack of the right people within these organizations or the right vision for what to make happen next. And so what I saw was that that's something that a consultant can help with because Sometimes you, they have money and they were willing to change. They just don't know how to change. And so helping guide them with a plan to make changes was something I enjoy very much because I, I like listening. I like being creative and helping these companies problem solve and plan for the future. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I mentioned earlier how feeling flat footed, I, I just imagine kind of the, 
the challenge and maybe the even the fear than when you walk into your executive meeting and look at all your retail veterans and say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna go online in a big way," and the, and they're like, "Oh, okay, who's gonna do that?" Right? It's- <laughs> <laughs> they look around the room at each other. It's like, which one of you guys has ever done this before? Yeah, they're like, Bob's in marketing. He runs the website. I guess he'll do all that, right? <laughs> or they give it to the <laughs> IT guy or, 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 or woman, and they, they, you know, they're doing it. They've never sold the thing online in their lives right. either. So. And I think, if, I think also, I'm not just saying this to be nice, Rick, but you've been, you're a technologist, but you've also been an executive on the retail side and on the, on the, um, the consultant side. Yeah, and also right. I would say on, you've, you've been on the, the e-commerce side, yeah. guy and the retail guy. And I, not everybody has that experience. I think this is always the challenge. If you're a retailer, you have to grow into this DTC. And I know the largest companies say, we'll just buy someone who's already there. Not everybody's in the largest companies. Anyway, enough of my blather. So let's get into today's topic, which is DTC logistics. And when we say DTC, in case you don't know it, we're talking about direct-to-consumer. I will also just throw this out there that many companies now seem to be using e-commerce for direct to their B2B customers too. So I think a lot of, <laughs> I used to say DTC or e-commerce, and I thought of that meaning direct to the consumer's house. But increasingly, we mean B two B. So, right, one more one more wrinkle to throw into the mess. <laughs> so, oh, exactly. So, there was a few topics I wanted to talk to you about. But first one is Amazon and their new partnership. Talk about that, Rick. Yeah, a- a- Amazon has launched a new uh, last mile program, which is in beta. And here's what problem they're trying to solve: the USPS service isn't that great. You know, they're not getting more money any any anytime soon. And they're really the only game in town to deliver that la- true last mile, particularly to every zip code, to every, zip code every, every, every PO box in America. There's no one, no one else can do that. And so I think what Amazon is trying to do is they, they really want to be everywhere. And so they started, I mean, if you imagine if I if I'm the Amazon executive, what do I do? I take the list of zip codes in America sorted by population and the rural ones go at the bottom and the and the and the big cities go at the top and I start from the top down. Well, that's kind of what Amazon has done. We're they're kind of through all the big cities. They're right. through a lot of middle America, you know, middle America, but all these rural routes, they don't really have a solution for. A right. lot of it is reliant on the USPS where the, you know, tracking may not be as good. It's certainly not to Amazon standards. Are, are what they imagine to, to be improvements. And so I, I think the first question is like, how do we improve service to rural America in an efficient way? And they're taking an interesting approach. What they're doing is partnering with essentially like local convenience stores. You know, you know we've all been in small towns all over this great country we live in. And, you know, you, you go and pick, you you get get gas there. You get groceries. You get all kinds of things like whatever it the is. General store. It, yeah. It's the general. <laughs> it's literally the general store. You know, there may be only one store within five miles of anything else, uh, and it's the only place everyone goes to get get things. But essentially, what Amazon is doing is creating a almost kind of a co-op program where these stores can sign up to be Amazon delivery partners for a rural last mile. And so you're going to get between 80 and 100 packages a day, and then you're going to have 
standards. In the meanwhile, to do that, you're going to get between 250 and 350 a package to deliver those packages on a route. So that's the that's the starting point. Yeah, and, and Rick, I watched this was a few years ago. By the way, I, USPS used to do just what you described. Well, you've probably seen old movies. I've seen old movies where you know the the uh, people walk into the general store and they ask for their mail because the mail didn't a <laughs> hundred years ago didn't deliver to those rural areas. I've always thought USPS should have done that partnership a long time ago. And by the way, we're talking about like areas. I live in Michigan, up we call uh, Northern Michigan up north, and uh, you know, so two hours north of here becomes up north. But then when you get to the Upper Peninsula, which is really up north, and I'm from Michigan, but that's like Far. I've been there like yeah. three times in my life, <laughs> right? And, and I think we're also talking upstate New York. Uh, New York City has no problems. Totally. Buffalo has no problems. It's the northern parts that somebody says, ah, "I've never been there." That's a uh, Way out in the middle of nowhere. No, definitely. And uh, I, I think, you know, none of, you know, UPS and FedEx, they haven't, they have never tried to solve this problem, you know, and, you know, they're, they're still handing, you know, particularly UPS is still handing items to the, to the post office. FedEx has insourced a lot of that volume. I'm not sure what they're, if they're doing anything in the rural, I think, I think they still have some kind of economy program for that, but Amazon, you know, essentially they don't want to own, you know, they want to own anything they don't have to. And and particularly they don't want to own anything that could strike against them. So so they, they they're trying to solve the labor problem too without having to say like, oh, these are Amazon employees. No, these are not Amazon employees. You are an independent business. You're just getting extra money by providing this service. But you think about what's happened, especially during COVID, there's lots of people who left the big cities and they moved. And I know of of one person I talked to who was from they were in Chicago, they moved up to Traverse City, Michigan, beautiful area, and then they just des- they decided, hey, we're not leaving, we're staying here. And Traverse City's metropolitan enough, so you can get stuff. But an hour outside of Traverse City, you can find yourself all of a sudden not getting mail. But let's face it, those people are very likely to buy stuff online. Why? Because they don't have the big mall by them, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's more convenient for them. And and for many of them, Amazon has been a godsend because otherwise the only thing they were able to get was in the general store and the department store that was our hour and a half drive or something. Yeah. And by the way, I know there's also, I don't know how official these businesses are, but where people from Latin America buy from Amazon and stuff gets put in a container and then shipped somewhere and then somebody distributes it. So we're seeing more and more. Uh, I mean, Amazon just, I mean, eventually I'll be out in the the jungle 500 miles from civilization and I'll say, I'll order something on Amazon and they'll deliver it. For sure. And it, like, I mean, this was a pretty surprising program for me because Amazon could easily say like, oh, we're, we're just going to use the USPS for this forever. I, I was curious why you thought like, why, why, why go down this far in the supply chain world if you're Amazon? Last time I talked to you, we were talking about Amazon's department. I mean, I'm doing air quotes department store because yeah. we both agree that's probably an insult to Amazon to say, given how innovative they've been, they are not going to open a department store like we went to 25 years ago. They're going to open the most innovative stores on earth, right? And it was also very surprising. Like, hey, what, what do you mean Amazon's opening retail locations? They, they've they they aren't doing it stupidly. They don't do. They don't wander into businesses. 
Anyway, the next thing I want to talk to you about is this these big acquisitions by, well, not that they're not huge, but they're acquisitions by American Eagle and the strategic value of those. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I would say American Eagle, I would say in the past three years or so, they hired a, a new chief supply chain officer. And it seems like what they're doing is they're trying to be essentially... They're trying to replicate, in some sense, Amazon Logistics, for, but for everyone else. And there are a lot of companies and startups that have tried this, but American Eagle really went at it in a in a big way with a couple of acquisitions. Both of them were last last year, from what I can tell. One is called AirTerra, which was a startup. They didn't disclose how much how big that company was, but it's kind of a middle mile firm. So going from big distribution centers to retail stores, that's that's kind of their domain, which is kind of the middle Mm -hmm. mile in any supply chain. Second is at the end of last year, they closed the acquisition of a company called Quiet Logistics, which was founded by a gentleman who's been on your program in the past. Yeah, yeah. Bruce, Bruce Welty. I'll put a link to that. And yeah, Quiet quiet Logistics, but he he called it Quiet 3PF, but they had specialized in delivery for retail locations. And I think, I think high-end retail so I had gotten, um, a, I think it was shorts or a sweater or something from Mac Weldon, and it was fulfilled. Come on, by, Joe, it's underwear. Just tell, just tell, no, just tell it us was, it's underwear. It was a gift from <laughs> my kid. <laughs> I wouldn't buy Mac Weldon stuff. You're not kidding me. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So, so why is this so important? And what is this? Where are they going with this? Yeah, I, I think what they're seeing is that. When when I did some research on them, their target is these mid-sized retailers. So if you're a retailer in between, let's say, a hundred million and a, and a billion dollars in revenue, then your solution is to really like you have you obviously have the big carriers, FedEx, UPS, as kind of your backstop, but that's not the most optimized network for a company that size. And, and they're saying no to the, uh, that business. I don't know if what, they say no now. They didn't used to say no, <laughs> right? And so you're having to cobble together. You know, and you just had Nate Skyber on, like all these regional carriers and networks to put together a supply chain. American Eagle is what they're trying to say is like, you come to us, we're going to handle your supply chain and you can spend your time differentiating on the front end. You know, you worry about your consumer experience, we'll worry about your supply chain and we're going to have enough scale by enough retailers that are in our network that we're going to be able to give you, you know, as good or almost as good a rates as Amazon you know, has for their own parcels so that you can compete like Amazon, even though you're in, you know, you're a mid-sized retailer, you're not at like Walmart size. Right. And, and I think we're seeing Walmart, I mean, I'm sorry, not Walmart. We're seeing Amazon is not a perfect fit for everyone. I mean, they're obviously what 38% of all e-commerce. Yeah. So they're a good solution for a lot of things. But if I'm a, I think Nike no longer does business with them and nor does Allbirds. And I think one of the challenges bigger brands have is they say, we want to own that customer experience. We want to own the, and by the way, if you sell something on Amazon, you say, cool, I, that's my customer. And Amazon says, cool, that's my customer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and I think the bigger brands have complained that they're using all that customer data and saying, Hey, we, we can get a supply chain and make that just as well as our, as, um, as the people who are selling on our, that's why you're seeing, I think it's basics or essentials that they sell their private label, increasingly important to them. So the biggest brands are saying, we want to own that experience on our own. But I think 
you mentioned, what is it, 100 million to 1 billion? Is it because Amazon's not a good option for them or they just want a, a set, in, in addition to the marketplace, they want to have their own their own um, direct-to-consumer? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, look, the reality is a lot of these retailers have their own stores and so their supply chains are complex. Amazon is building a direct-to-consumer s- supply chain, but it doesn't really have any store customers. And so there's a big gap in supply chain providers that are retail focused. So, you know, they have these big distribution centers, they have these store outlets, but they also have direct to consumer strategy. And so, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting is Fanatics, which is a huge sports licensing and apparel manufacturer, just signed. They have retail locations. They have retail locations, but, you know, they're also exclusive provider for all the sports leagues, you know, and, and, and everything. And they just signed a big deal with Quiet. It's called Quiet Platforms now, which is part of American Eagle, for their same day and next day strategy. So they're going to distribute their inventory near the consumer. Like I imagine, you know, if you go to uh, in Michigan, all your Wolverines fans, you know, the uh, all, all, all your all your blue inventory <laughs> will be, you know, in, in their Michigan warehouse, right? Then you right. can get it next day. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And so as far as American Eagle, they have retail locations, and I'm sure they're selling online. How how as another retailer that might com- compete? Let's just say uh, somebody who's competing against American Eagle. Are they going to want to work with that platform? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I'd say Quiet has, and in the past, specialized in apparel, but not exclusively. I found that they had a lot of apparel customers. If you look at like Ruala Guild Group, they've been using Quiet for you know many years. You know, companies like Bluefly, I know, used to use Quiet. But in terms of, so Quiet had about about 50 customers before. Peloton was, was one of their customers. Yeah, and, Mac and, Weldon, as I no, said. No, Mac again. Weldon, as you, as you mentioned. Wasn't so underwear. I, I, I think, <laughs> let's be clear, it wasn't <laughs> underwear, everyone. So I think they didn't have, you know, if, if I kind of look down the customer list, it was more brands than retailers. And so I think what, what Quiet is, what, what American Eagle is trying to do is take, the quiet becomes sort of the middle of the uh, the three PL or three PF as they call it solution, yep. and Airterra, and then maybe the rest of the AEO network becomes the retailer solution, so they can hit maybe both both kinds of customers. And you know, I don't know if there's separation or whatever. You're you know, the inventory is the same facilities, but you know, there. I guess people are are e- more likely to say. Okay, American Eagle, are they really competing with me? Maybe not as much as Amazon is. And so it's all kind of shades of gray a little a little bit. Well, and, and we'll say also, I'm an automotive guy. I spent much of my early career. And you'd be shocked if you were to find out how many joint ventures competitors have in automotive. Because when you look at like new new technologies, like as we switch to electric, a lot of companies are saying, hey, look, the, my competitors are going to spend a billion dollars on that. And I got to spend a billion dollars. And why don't we just each spend a half a billion, right? Right. And so I th- think there's ways to work together. And to your point, maybe their bigger bigger risk is missing the market or competing against Amazon. Yeah, and I think look, what's their alternative? The alternative is to run it in house, is to lease and build their own facilities and cobble together their own network. That and at the end of the day, their cost per unit is probably higher than American Eagle's cost per unit. And so if your service levels are less and your cost per unit's higher, then 
you know, American Eagle might make sense for some of these companies. So I, I think that's I think that's the idea. Rick, there's some one of the things that I think is is so crazy about looking at all this is we could have called our today's podcast blurred lines. I already did a podcast on that, but you have companies like Costco that makes a significant amount of money on their Kirkland private label. So they're a retailer already, right? So no no big deal. But if you look at someone like Mac Weldon and they say, why don't I just, why don't I build a store and rather than go through these retail locations that mark my stuff up, why don't I spend a lot of money and get a lot more stuff online? So there's, there's a, a whole bunch of blurring of the lines where you have a retailer becoming a logistics provider. You have a, a, a retailer becoming a private label brand and we're seeing this everywhere. And so it, this, to, to be able to put people in nice little buckets is getting harder and harder. It's getting harder and harder. And I, you know, I, I think American Eagle, I mean, this is a, still a relatively new initiative to them, but they're investing big money behind it. The quiet acquisition was $360 million acquisition. So that's not peanuts. Right. And, you know, as you know, logistics margins are not high. And so how many parcels are you going to have to run through the network on a, on a, on a, profit margin basis to recoup that investment you know you need to sell these customers it's you know it's it's not an overnight recovery rick i'll put you on the spot on this one is this a is this the beginning of a trend where we're going to see retailers starting to buy up logistics companies <laughs> you know i i think only a few of them can really first of all there aren't that many there's not a whole lot of excess capacity out there if you find it, there, there, there were some ports recently that Amazon was leasing about 10 million square feet of, of their recent facilities, but they have over what, 300, 400 million, 300 to 500 million square feet on their own. So them leasing 10 million is not that much in the grand scheme. So I don't, I don't think you'll see many retailers do it. I think Amazon, Walmart, and Target are in a class by themselves. And then American Eagle is, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of companies that are in some weird positions. I heard not so long ago, Bed Bath and Beyond and Kroger were doing something together, and I think that was not so much a retail partnership was how do we do more online together. And yeah, so, so companies like Bed Bath and Beyond, you could see where they'd be kind of at risk of people buying that stuff online rather than buying at their stores, and they're the ones who've got to carry all that inventory. I look at like uh, I buy all my tech over at Best Buy. I like. I like the idea of touching it, touching, you know, touching the keyboard, all that. But so often they act like an e-commerce location. So I, I could buy that online or even when I buy a computer, they'll go, well, can we deliver it tomorrow or the next day? Yeah, sure. So so I think you'll see more and more retailers looking for ways to uh, to make sure they're not getting left behind. Next thing I want to talk to you about is the wonderful success of dark stores. I know you're a big fan when we were talking online. <laughs> Yeah, dark stores are a problem. You know, I, I think they're a problem for. Up, what is it? Yeah, dark store is no. It's like it's like a party where every you're shipping, but the lights are off. No, it's not. It's not that dark store is essentially fulfillment a, a small fulfillment center without a retail storefront, usually in an urban or a suburban area. Right. So what's the problem? So by the way, I read just I was looking at Wikipedia because there was not a lot of good articles that were U.S. based. A lot of them were talking about U.K. And it said it started in the U.K. and it spreaded, spread throughout Europe a little bit. And now it was in the U.S. And I was like, 
dark store. All I can think about is my local Kroger or Meyer or Walmart with the lights out and them delivering to my house. I was like, does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, look, I think the original idea is a retail storefront is expensive and you have to employ all the staff. And I, I think it, it's almost a, an idea that was built out of the pandemic a little bit where it's not totally true, but it's it's pretty close to true, like within a couple of years of it, where if if you think that all volume is going online and no one's shopping retail anymore, then the question is, why do I need all these employees in the front of the house? And why do I need to make the stores look pretty and nice if everyone is just going online anyway? And so if you're in a city like New York, you know, I could, where, where do I put my store? Do I put my store in Madison Avenue? you know, where rent is, is something, or can I put it, you know, near the river or far down and the real estate might be a little bit less, but I can still deliver online orders to Manhattan in an hour, let's say. I think that is the idea behind the dark store. I think the challenge behind the dark store is still like, because you don't have a storefront, no one knows that you're there. So like, how do you, how do you meet customers? You know, I think you said also when we were prepping, you said that New York and San Francisco don't even allow you to have a dark store or, or it might, might not fit zoning for certain areas. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think what, what the cities have done, you know, you've seen like massive hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in venture capital investments in all of these 15, 30 minute, five minute you know, delivery providers, particularly in the big cities. And there've been like right. 10 of them go through New York City and like eight of them have gone out of business or something already. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, there's so much, none of them have, were running a profit. They were just all funded by investors. So I think there, I mean, I think there's something like one of them made like 10, opened up like 10 dark stores in New York City. I can't remember if it was GoPuff or one of them. Anyway, the what New York saw was that well, it's not really in New York's best interest to open up all these delivery centers that people can't walk into because otherwise like a tourist walks by and then you have all these empty storefronts that you can't walk right. into. And so it doesn't make for a nice city to live in from, from that point of view. And so I think what now, if you like go up near Columbia, there's a GoPuff store. Uh, I think you may have had David Glick on the podcast in the past, the CTO of Flex. He said the last time he came to New York City, we went to dinner. He said, yeah, there's a GoPuff near Columbia, and it is so disorganized. He was taking pictures. <laughs> it was inventory all over the place. They had a storefront because they were required by zoning to have it, but it was really just poorly done. <laughs> and so I don't. So to your point, we're not going to see dark stores, but I think – and it, I'm going to start, and I want you to yeah. elaborate because you know more. I, I could see where some grocery stores are going to say we're going to our next locations is going to be maybe a smaller footprint in retail and then in it side by side with a fulfillment a fulfillment center. And the reason we want to do it that way is because using like shipped or Instacart, sometimes retailers lose money on those transactions. And so they don't want that. What they also lose is the customer experience and they lose the customer. So shipped, and it's, it's just a matter of time before shipped's going to, I use shipped. Shipped is going to send me, which is owned by Target, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Shipped is going to send me an email that says, hey, Joe, $80 off your first order with ship fulfillment. And and they're going to have enough emails in the area. And they're going to say, yep, we opened our Detroit Metro location. And I get 80% off. And I say, hey, 
they're $80 off. I love it. I'm going to start working with them. So I think these retailers are saying, I don't want that. I want that customer to be owned by me. We'll either manage the fulfillment with gig economy people or we'll manage it with our own employees. Or maybe, I think Capstone Logistics is under this space, where they say, we'll hire a, a 3PL to manage that fulfillment center for us, but it'll be branded to our store. So if I get something from Kroger, a guy in a Kroger shirt shows up or at least a hat and I give the Kroger experience. So tell me if I'm wrong about that. No, I, I think that's definitely true, particularly if you're in the suburbs or you have a chance to reserve some of your storefront footprint to logistics. Walmart has famously said they're going to retrofit a lot of their stores to either expand the store to put logistics like a mini warehouse next to it or reserve, let's say, 20 20 to 30 percent of their store to logistics and that allows them to do essentially same day and you know set up their neighborhood routes and do potentially automated picking for for fast moving items so they they can deliver someone could go online you could sit in your car and say like i want this item and then you know an hour or two hours later you can drive by and pick it up. Yeah. I think one of the reasons retail is a difficult business is because of the carrying costs of a lot of stuff that you bought, whether it's food or clothes or jewelry. I could see also that retail space being smaller and you say, yeah, the stuff that is slow moving is in the back, right? And we'll, or maybe not even at that location, we'll deliver it to your house. You want something kind of rare? That's going to be, rare is the wrong word, not yeah. fast moving, that gets delivered to your house within 24 hours. But, and I look at Target. I know we've talked about this before when I had you on my podcast. If you go to Target to go grocery shopping, they have the, what I call the curated grocery store. It's much smaller footprint. But for the most part, when I've gone there, I was like, this is good. This is all I needed. Right. Yeah. And I think what if you even look at retailers like Home Depot and those, they used to stock all of their, as much of their heavy bulky items as possible, like big appliances. And now, to me, when you when you talk to uh, managers in those stores, a lot of that inventory has moved out because consumers right. don't always expect to just load it that day and take it home. Like they're going to get it delivered by someone who's going to handle it properly tomorrow or the next couple of days. And so that means these retailers can be a lot more efficient with the inventory that they're carrying in stores. They can move some of that heavy, bulky stuff out of the stores, which is expensive to ship into a store and leave it in a more central or or regional facility. Yeah. I'm going to do a podcast coming up here called inventory is everything with uh, Jeff flowers from uh, one rail. And one of the things we were talking about the other day was imagine tire, like tire, low tire shops. So you go and have went four new tires and they, let's just say there's 700 different types of tires, but only a hundred are fast moving. So you could say, I have all my locations in the Detroit area, the New York area, wherever. I could have one DC that has all of, all of the stock and I can deliver it within an hour or two and get it to that location. Now I don't have to carry inventory at 40 locations. Right. And it reduces your carrying costs a lot. And I think this is going to help these retailers. And by the way, I think kind of associated with this is when you think about silos, we we as transportation and logistics guys go, I'm just going to reduce my cost. Right. Inventory carrying costs is probably a bigger deal for a lot of companies than their transportation costs. So I think some companies are going to say, yes, we increased our transportation costs, 
because it saved us so much money on inventory carrying costs. So we're in a where I think as the as the uh, supply chain gets smarter and further optimizes and knocks down some of the damn silos that has us creating all these local optimums. <laughs> right. And what I mean by local optimum is Rick optimizes his department, I optimize my department. But had we worked together, we would have reduced the overall cost. Yeah, no, that that makes a, sense, a lot of sense. I think, you know, these retailers are are getting more, getting smarter about uh, about their logistics investments, and and that includes folks like Walmart and Target, who kind of just had bad earnings calls, but they're still making lo- more logistics investments, right? Yeah, yep. So you wanted to talk also about Walmart Go Local. What is that? Yeah, Walmart Go Local is essentially Walmart's version of gig workers. And so Walmart obviously has, you know, how many? You know, something like 2,000 stores or something like that. I don't know, 2,400. And they, you know, it could be more than that. I would have to look it up. But they, they have a lot of stores. Obviously, one of the biggest employers in America. And they are trying to enable a same day or next day experience around their stores. And they, they're not just doing it for themselves. They're allowing other retailers to put inventory in their facilities and they're going to pick it up and deliver it within the radius of a Walmart and a half hour or like whatever wow. within the radius of Walmart. And, and they just recently announced in the past couple of weeks that they're now up to 1600 locations. And so, you know, one retailer I know that took advantage of this, I'm not sure if it's implemented yet, is is Chico's, which is a Los Angeles, I believe, based retailer of, of clothing. Yeah, we got them here. For, for men and women. So they, I haven't seen a lot of new customer announcements, but they seem to keep expanding the service right now. So they're definitely investing in it. Yeah, it's Walmart is just a, a juggernaut. I mean, they're like Amazon. You just never be surprised by the next... Next big move. And by the way, one of the things I think is really great, and this is completely off the topic of <laughs> logistics, but I think it's interesting. Walmart has opened up in some of their locations, medical centers, and I think it'll be staffed by nurse practitioners. And it's not for surgeries or you know major procedures, but it's for little things like I got a cold. Right. Um, I think during COVID, we learned how nice it is. I went, I got one of my COVID shots at Meyer, which is in the Midwest. And at the same time, I got the flu shot. Right. By the way, don't do that. That, that, <laughs> was, that was a hangover without the party. Oh, no. It's <laughs> a bad news. But I think that they're cash only. And I think what they, I think their average price was like $30, $40. And you can see a lot more people because, you know, I jo- joke about this, but do you ever have a cold and you call the doctor? They're like, we'll get you in, let's see, three weeks from Wednesday. And you're like, I'll be dead or better by then. <laughs> That urgent care popped up for that. But a lot of times you go to urgent care and you go, God almighty, I went over there and it's, I got to sit in this, I got to sit in there and then it's a hundred bucks. You yeah. Know, like, with a whole bunch of sick people, you know, in the same. <laughs> so Walmart's, again, I love they're listening to their customers. And I think there's a lot of things that can be handled for 30 or $40 with a nurse practitioner and you're in and out and you're like, I was buying groceries anyway. Yeah, exactly. I was, I was sneezing on all the other customers while I was sick. And- right. right, right. <laughs> so Rick, I want to, I want to summarize this. And then I, before you go, I want to hear your talk about the kind of the importance of e-commerce and DTC, whatever you want to call it to three PLs retailers and brands. So that's a big, that's a big ask, but big topic. Um, yeah. So we talked about a few things. We talked about Amazon partnering with these rural stores, just getting better and better every day. 
just as a way to better serve the rural customers. We talked about American Eagle acquiring Quiet Logistics and Airterra as really just a way to just, I don't know if they're competing with Amazon, but they're offering a solution that is great for potentially their competitors or at least maybe adjacent competitors. We talked about dark stores. We're not so sure that's a good idea, <laughs> but there are things happening quickly with fulfillment and e-commerce locations being one and the same. And we didn't touch on it, but yesterday I, I published a podcast with Nate Skyber and you mentioned uh-huh. Nate. Nate came on my podcast and talked about the six different types of e-commerce delivery providers. And I thought it was fantastic. I'm going to put a link to that. It's obviously a whole podcast, but we used to have UPS and FedEx, and now all of a sudden there's just an explosion of e-commerce providers. And the, and there's some are just very different. Some are technology-oriented, some are gig economy-oriented, but I think huge market, right. huge. And it's if we're going to have same day, next day, we're going to have to have very responsive providers. And FedEx, UPS have done great. I don't think everything is their kind of business though. And I think they're realizing that and they're pricing themselves out of certain markets deliberately. Obviously Amazon popped up and I, I they're very different business than American Express or I mean um, FedEx or UPS, but obviously doing some of the same work. Anyway, I want to get your final thoughts and talk about again, the importance of DTC to three PLs who are, might be listening and also retailers and the brands. Because it just seems like we're all... I, I started off the podcast saying this, Rick. I feel like everybody's flat-footed. There's just there's almost like you've got to be running all the time to keep up. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, look, I, I think 3PLs are, you know, are almost the backbone of direct-to-consumer. You know, it's, it's typical, like, you know, if you're a DTC brand... Most people start with a 3PL solution because it's it's pretty cost effective to get off the ground. You don't need to buy your own facility and and outfit it and everything. You can just work with a partner that that maybe fits the type of category that you have, and you, you know your your packaging and box experience, whatever it is. So I think to me the way one of the ways I follow the industry is I I follow what FedEx and UPS are putting out, and they really are focused very much on small and medium business shippers. Oh, really? And the growth of those companies. And many of those companies are all direct-to-consumer businesses, e-commerce parcels. And so I think to me, and and who, you know, do the bulk of them have contracts with? It's FedEx and, U- and UPS. And obviously there's more beyond that, but that's, that's, a, that's a big number of them. And so I think if you look at the, the segment of the market that's growing, fastest is a small and medium business segment and the segment within that is growing fastest is e-commerce and direct consumer parcels so i, I think it kind of goes without saying like you put those start putting those things together that if i'm a 3pl and i'm not in direct consumer then i'm in a segment of the market that's growing slower than the overall than if i were doing direct consumer and so that's that's kind of how i think about it is like obviously everyone has to choose a customer if you're a 3pl you need to choose the customers that you could service well and that are the healthiest customers, you know, that are, that, that are high margin for you. And I think particularly the higher end of the direct consumer market that have some margin to get, you know, to give up like a, like a Mac Weldon, for instance, is, is, is a good type of customer. Yeah. I'll throw one thing in there is I, you didn't used to hear it too much, but now you hear first mile, middle mile, final mile. So final mile obviously has gotten all the attention that is from the, the store or the, or the, uh, the, 
warehouse to the consumer and increasingly to the business. Then we have the middle mile, which might be from a factory to a distribution center. And then the first mile, I guess is, let's see, that would be picking up in a lot of cases, picking up at a, a maker and taking it to a DC. That's right. And so it's, it's, so it's interesting to see companies kind of start segregating them in terms of first, middle, and final mile. But I think we have to also look and say, if you're working a lot with a lot of retailers, they're going to they're gonna have a final mile provider. So maybe you need a partnership or a service offering. Right. So continuing on, what do, what do brands need to worry about? What do retailers need to worry about? Uh, you know, I think brands, you know, in particular, right, a, a lot of direct consumer brands are starting to make decisions about how much retail and wholesale exposure do I want in my business? Because it's almost sort of good news, bad news. Good news is direct consumers usually higher margin because they can control the whole customer experience and right. the product isn't discounted in retailer. Bad news is no one that may not be where your consumer is always shopping. And so they right. may not know who we are. So like there, there was a story yesterday about Allbirds and they are looking at getting into a Dick's Sporting Goods owned retail store called Public Lands, and they're doing tests into Nordstrom's. Like, well, good news, bad news. Like, <laughs> right now, most people who know Allbirds are on the coasts. And so they said they had like less than 10% of consumers in the US, or what, I don't know what the number is, knew about Allbirds. You know, but right. if you're in New York City, a lot of people wearing Allbirds. But if you go to Minnesota, maybe not, not as many. So the question is, okay, I need to get into retail to, to reach the, you know, the, the middle, you know, middle of the market that isn't on the coast, let's say. But now, okay, your product's in a Macy's or a Nordstrom's. What does that mean in three months? Well, it's going to be discounted 30%. Right, and that's right. going to come right out of your margin and guaranteeing that's going to come out of your wholesale price. And the perception of your brand might diminish because now you're not a premium brand. Now you're next to everyone else. I heard somebody, I was at a family function and um, was a party. So there was some non-family there. And um, I was talking to a guy who works for, for a major CPG, one of the largest CPGs. And he's based in Arkansas, close to Walmart. And, but he was, we were talking about Costco and he said, he said, we have to be in Costco. And he says, but we have to we have to discount our price so ridiculous because they're giving huge discounts. Of course, by the way, I have that product in my house. It was uh, for the kitchen. It was like I had to buy, you know, like two years worth of that stuff. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it's way. a great discount, right? Yeah, it's the Costco way. Yeah, you want aspirin? You can buy 500. <laughs> you know, like, well, I don't wait. Am I going to live long enough to use 500 aspirin? That's beside the point. <laughs> right. It's beside the point, Joe. Yeah. But but he said, we have to be there. And he's absolutely right, because that would be another brand would say, we'll take that place since so-and-so didn't step up with the right price. And all of a sudden, they're, they're I go to Costco a lot. And by the way, I go to Costco to get out of the damn house. I work from home. I, li I live at home. So I think that, I think this is what one of the things I say all the time on my podcast, I think the retailers have to make this a customer experience because people still want to leave the house. I still want to go out to restaurants. I still want to, I know you guys don't have restaurants anymore, Rick, but in the rest of the country, <laughs> no we restaurants. have restaurants. Shut <laughs> we down want to go to you. restaurants. We want to go to retail locations. We want to enjoy life. So one last thing, talk about retailers and what they need to do with uh, when it comes to DTC. Yeah. I think, you know, the big question in retailers is how do you use your store network as fulfillment nodes? 
I think we, you know, we talked about Walmart a little bit. We talked about some of the providers that you had on the, on the podcast before and adding fulfillment to your, your retail stores is kind of the way forward for a direct consumer. If you look at somebody like a target, something like night you now, they're the most advanced form of this, right. something like 97% of their direct consumer purchases go through their store network. Yeah. I know the number was really high and I suspect it's getting higher every day. And that's, that's with the location like my target was built 20, 20 years ago. So I keep thinking their new locations, you know, they're going to have even more and that they're going to build those stores with that in mind. Right. Yeah. They're building new stores and then they, they retrofit. I mean, for the past six, seven years, I've been retrofitting some number of stores every year, something like 200 or something. And so they just keep, keep improving. Yeah. When Amazon opens those, again, using the air quotes, department stores, that was Wall Street Journal's words, you know, those are going to be a a blueprint for a lot of companies going forward. Yeah, definitely. So I think retailers, the big question is like, how do I maintain my store experience while at the same time serving like same day, next day, direct consumer sales yep. uh, for like, like drive up and curbside. You know, if you look at Target's earnings, 50% of the growth of their, their business in the past quarter over the last year was drive up and curbside. And so it's a huge, it's a huge draw for consumers right now. Right. And I think it was partly because of COVID, but then now once we saw it, we never want to go back. The, a lot of the growth in e-commerce was groceries. And when you think about a sweater I might've ordered t- 10 years ago on Amazon, that might've gotten here in five, six days. And I always thought it was a great sol- solution, but it was a FedEx or UPS thing. UPS and FedEx are never going to deliver your groceries. <laughs> so definitely. Anyway, Rick, final thoughts before you... We wrap this bad boy up. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you can't wait a week without finding a new acquisition or a new major solution or change on the market. So I, I love following logistics because it's a fast changing market. It's important. It's important for brands and retailers because it's a big part of their customer experience. Number one, consumers care about it. And second is your CFO cares about it because it's a big part of your costs as a retailer brand too. Right, right. It, well, it's funny. When I used to sell third-party logistics services, I used to insist upon talking to C-level people. I wanted to talk to the general manager, the owner, the CEO. And, I, and people would always say, don't talk to, uh, talk to the guys in transportation. I was like, but I hit sales. I hit your costs. That's the, I want to be a strategic solution. I don't want to come in as just part of logistics. So Rick, before you go, tell us what's new over at RMW Commerce and then tell us again, who's your sweet spot? Who do you work with? Yeah. So let me start with the second question. The sweet spot of my customers are private equity backed brands that are in the middle market. So I would say between a hundred million in revenue and about a billion in revenue, but typically less than 10% of that revenue today is e-commerce, whether it's B2B or direct to consumer. And so they're they're trying to catch up or accelerate the growth of their e-commerce channels and, and are looking for a third party partner to help with them with their assessment of their businesses, strategic planning and or business optimization services, whether it's in their supply chain and marketplaces or direct to consumer technology, you know, those sorts of things. And so in particular, I've been working with a number of private equity firms recently for new acquisitions. You know, they're looking to acquire a new company and need someone to assess what is an e-commerce business, and they don't have that expertise in-house. And so, right. you know, if I'm going to make a $50 million acquisition, uh, I want to make sure that if I invest in it, it's going to grow three to five times, and I'm not going to 
what's under the couch that's going to pump out and eat me that, you know, when I put money into it. That's the hard part is again, if you're a retailer and you say, I want to buy a DTC brand, what do I know about DT? I'm a retail guy. And and then there's always the technology part where you, you know, you might look and go, Oh my God, this is a platform built on old tech where I might look and go, Hey, isn't this cool? <laughs> this is amazing. Works. It's way better the than website. we have it today. <laughs> right. The website works just fine. And you say, yeah, that's that's a standard that is going to be abandoned in the next five years. Well, I wouldn't know that. That's why you need a, a that's why you need a guy from RMW Commerce Consulting. No, that's great. Anyway, Rick, thank you so much. You heading to any conferences coming up? I am. I'll be at Parcel Forum in, in the fall. There there's um and so we'll be giving a talk there, actually, David Glick and I, about Amazon Logistics. Okay. So that, that'll that be a lot of fun. David and I did that. Yeah, you did that last year, right? We did it last year virtually. Uh, this year we'll be in person. Yeah, yeah. Knock on wood. We're all gonna, I'm not going to tempt any gods, whoever, whichever gods you're, yes, you're into. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time, Rick. You're always a great guest because you really do have your finger on the pulse of this, really, this uh, just an it. it it, there's an intersection of the retail, the DTC brands and the technology and God, it just changes so rapidly. That's why I need you to come on once a quarter, Rick. <laughs> Thanks. I, I appreciate the time. I always enjoy coming on. Yep. And one last thing, if you're not always already following Rick Watson on LinkedIn, please do. He's a great follow and also check out the Watson weekly and I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, Watson weekly and uh, your, your website. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rick. Thanks so much, Joe. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.